Good Friday afternoon, everyone. I hope you're doing well. It's Danny Haifong for another live stream. Two in a row. Don't generally do that. But I wanted to come to you all today with a very special guest, a friend, a comrade. And I wanted to discuss, and I think that this will hopefully become sort of like an ongoing series about how to apply Marxism to some of the more pressing questions of the day, of history. Uh, but uh, this, uh, this stream will be about Ukraine. It'll be about the Ukraine crisis. But unlike other streams, uh, unlike other sort of reactions to the events of the day when it comes to the Ukraine crisis, Russia's military operation, we're going to be talking about how Marxism applies to this. And that's a huge question. So uh, we're going to do our best to consolidate and do our best to get through this. But I wanted to bring on today uh, Radhika Desai. Uh, Radhika is a scholar and she's the convener of the International Manifesto Group, which I will definitely be pulling up their manifesto, how you can sign it. Uh, it's a, an incredible document that took a lot of work from many different people, but uh, Radhika is here with me today. So hello, Radhika, how are you doing? Uh, hi, Danny. I'm good, thank you. Good, thank good, you good. Having you here. Yeah, yeah. Well, this should be a really good discussion. Uh, while... You all are here, though, and listening to Radhika. Make sure that you like this stream, subscribe to the channel, all that good stuff. Um, so, Radhika, you convened this international manifesto group uh, with uh, many others and came up with a document, uh, a manifesto. Could you talk about it and, and maybe tell viewers a little bit more about yourself and I'm going to pull it up because I think this document can also help inform our understanding of the Ukraine crisis in a, in a deeper way than maybe uh, we have been hearing in the media, the corporate media, and just in general. So I'll, I'll, I'll kick it to you. Sure, Danny. Let me just get my sort of some personal details out of the way first. So I teach political studies and political economy at the University of Manitoba. And uh, over the years, I've always done polit. I've, okay, let me rephrase that. I teach politics in a way that never ignores political economy. And on top of that, over the last couple of decades, in fact, three decades or so, more or less since I started, because everybody and their dog was talking about globalization and American empire and such like things, I ended up uh, having to think my way through all those things. And I essentially came up to the conclusion that um, uh, I did not agree with what I call these cosmopolitan ways of thinking about the world economy. And that even Marx, who is normally sort of trotted up to, 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 to support these ideas from a leftist perspective or a leftist version of these ideas, even Marx would not support it. So I wrote a book called Geopolitical Economy, in which I explained that, in fact, for Marx, classes as well as nations were equally important actors in the history of capitalism. And so uh, and, and I've developed my ideas since. And so I work on political economy, international political economy, or what I call 
geopolitical economy. And of course, over the years, well, been the pandemic. So let me now talk a little bit about the about the International Manifesto Group. So when the pandemic started and we were all asked to go home and stay at home, etc., this for us in Canada happened around the middle of March uh, of 2020. And I just happened to be, and of course, I, in fact, that very weekend, I, I wrote a piece about capitalism and the pandemic, because from, for me, it was clear right from the start that while, of course, it was a public health emergency, the pandemic was also raising fundamental questions about the viability of capitalism. So I was writing about this, thinking about this, and I happened to be chatting with a Greek friend. And we said, you know, it's really so important for us to understand what is happening in different countries, how the lockdowns are working, what governments are doing, how they're approaching the public health crisis, how uh, the economy is faring, etc., etc. So we created in the end, he brought in some of his friends, I brought in some of my friends and over the, we would meet roughly fortnightly just to have informal conversations, everybody telling us about what had happened in their neck of the woods. You know, people from all over Europe, from the United States, from a, some Asian countries, China, Japan, Russia, etc. We had people joining from all these different parts of the world. So Latin America as well and so on. So uh, and then what we realized is that actually our conversations were getting more and more interesting and that we should perhaps publicize some of them. So we would have a formal part of our conversation that we started publicizing. And eventually that went into us having webinars and so on. So from about November of 2020, roughly around the time of the US elections, we ended up starting uh, creating panels. One of our first panels was, of course, about the US elections and so on. So we started publishing these. And then by the following year, somebody said, well, we do call ourselves the International Manifesto Group, so we should have a manifesto. So then we wrote a manifesto. I should also say that one of the reasons we called ourselves the International Manifesto Group was that it, our group was always, it wasn't just about sort of understanding, but also figuring out what is to be done. What should leftists be doing in the present context? Because so many things, complex things were happening. So anyway, so eventually by September of 2021, we had launched this manifesto, which uh, you are lo looking at on the screen. It's called Through Pluripolarity to Socialism. And this title is very carefully chosen because the general idea is that, um, I mean, capital, capital is, so, so, so the general idea is roughly the following. People have been talking about the term multipolarity. And one of my arguments in geopolitical economy, which is also reflected in the in the manifesto, which because people, all of us who were writing it agreed about this, is that rather than thinking about the development of capitalism over the last several centuries as being about globalization or free markets or uh, Amer American hegemony replacing British hegemony, etc., etc., it's actually far more useful to think about the development of capitalism as be, because, as a progressive emergence of multipolarity. Because imagine, Britain is the first industrial capitalist country in the world. And for a brief moment in the middle of the 19th century, it sort of rules the waves, you know. Britannia rules the waves. It seems to dominate world capitalism. But that moment didn't last very long because by the 1870s, Britain was already began facing competition from other countries that were developing, not because markets were spreading or because Britain was passing on her hegemony to somebody else, but because they all undertook 
state-directed protectionist industrialization that uh, helped them to combat the dominance of in British industrial uh, 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 British industry in the world market. And so this, this type of development, which um, Trotsky, for the want of a better word, called combined development, or contend, we can also call contender development, which is state-directed, in which states play a central role. This type of development was had already made the world multipolar back in 1870. Then you got the big crisis of this world, the First World War, or what some people would call the 30 years crisis of 1914 to 1945. And in this, the crucible of this crisis, in went an authoritarian and um, an imperial world, and out came a much uh, a world in which there was much greater popular empowerment and imperialism was much more weakened so and and since then we have only become more multipolar and the key issue just one final point i'll add before i pass it back to danny for his comments because i don't want to be just one talking head here but um the key uh, the other most important thing we have to remember is that from 1917 onwards the 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 uh, to the ranks of other countries that had pursued contender development through capitalist means like the united states itself like germany like japan was added a new type of contender development and that was socialist development and in a certain sense you can also think of the 30 years crisis as being bookended by the two biggest revolutions the world against capitalism the world has ever known 1917 the bolshevik revolution 1949 the chinese revolution and so these two you have these two revolutions so they added a new type of contender development so i mean that's just to give you a broad idea that we are today we, everybody is at home with the term multipolarity and we prefer the term pluripolarity which i believe was coined by hugo chavez as a way to say that actually Capitalism in itself is so contradictory that the world is forced to uh, become uh, uh, the, the world is uh, the forced to have not only there's no pure capitalism. So each national capitalism is different. Plus, of course, every country that builds socialism will do it in its own way, based on its own history, based on its own capacities, based on its own position in the international hierarchy that is uh, World, the world economy. So that's just to give you a, some idea of why we call the manifesto what we did, which is that we are going to, the world is going to go through a period of pluripolarity of multitudes of more or less reformed capitalisms to uh, and socialisms to some kind of more broad socialism as well. So that's the way we see the path to socialism as running through nations, not somehow in some magical way transcending nations. Yeah, well, that's I think that's a really great summary of both the purpose and even some of the uh, the content of the document that uh, really was a, a project uh, that's global in character and uh, that took a lot of work for many, many different uh, forces. And so here is the document, um, or at least here's the website where you can go and I'll definitely publish uh, this also in uh, the chat, the link to this. So 
there's a lot of translations here as well. I don't know if you want to speak to it's, uh, how many translations you're able to get, but you can get in many different languages, it seems. There are many. There's a all, well, we, we feel we've covered pretty uh, a lot of the major languages. So there's a Chinese translation, there's uh, the Spanish, French, German, the ma major European languages, there's a Russian translation, there's an Arabic translation, uh, there's a Turkish uh, translation, there's a uh, a, a Marathi translation. Uh, there's a Tamil translation. We're still waiting for some others, but we are we have uh, uh, quite a few. And I should say that this is all due to the enthusiasm people have felt. None of this is paid. Everybody has done volunteer translations, which mm. is, shows you how people, how much people have been inspired by this document. So, and we, we are soon going to have a Swedish one. We had a, just completely out of the blue. Somebody said. Uh, I've just done a Swedish translation there. We are just fixing a few few, uh, 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 few kinks there, here and there, and it will soon be up as well. And uh, we have others in, in the works. So, um, yeah, there are many translations as well. So you can, the translations you can download right away. You can also download the manifesto and then you can, or, or you can read it online in English. Yes, and you can sign it, definitely sign it as well. So here you can see that there's a place to sign it because... Uh, it's a way to uh, show your support for this work. Um, but Radhika, continue. Sorry. No, no. All I was saying is none of these are machine translations. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. And then um, I'll just share the document really quick so people knows what it, know, know what it looked like, what it looks like in English at least. So here is the document, it's uh, 20 pages long for a manifesto. I must say that's pretty short, <laughs> uh, it, but it's, it's. Uh, I mean, it's concise and, and there's so many, I mean, you, you address so many things from neoliberalism, the role of geopolitics, the geopolitical economy in the struggle for capitalism and socialism. I mean, the crisis of imperialism, you really do go through uh, these really pressing questions. So uh, definitely give it a read, sign it. I put the link in the chat. And I think that this document can play a huge uh, role in helping us understand what's going on right now with regard to Ukraine. So let's just get to this because this was this conversation is all about how do we apply the principles theory of marxism to the crisis going on in ukraine i mean the propaganda is just off the charts uh, i i did an interview with you for the real news with ben norton talking about it but i feel like ever since that interview uh, there has been so much going on uh, and uh, overall i mean this crisis has had global ramifications it's not just centered on russia ukraine no matter how much the west tries to get us to just think about this as russia ukraine russia bad ukraine good right this real dogmatic kind of uh, linear stagnant way of thinking really this crisis just i think uh, uh, uproots and upends a lot of basic assumptions that uh, we are told about geopolitics, about political economy. So where do we begin? I mean, where do we go from here? Like, like how do that we understand really this from the, from the from from a Marxist 
uh, lens because this but is the maybe, left lens. There's nothing more left than, than a Marxist lens. Well, you know, you are so right. And and it really is a good question where to begin. But perhaps since we since we have talked about the manifesto, maybe I, we can begin by saying roughly the following. When we wrote the manifesto last summer, late last summer, and published it in the fall, the big issue on the agenda was, of course, the pandemic. And one of the things the manifesto argues is the pandemic really exposed the inequalities, uh, the, 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 essentially the, the shoddy reality of contemporary capitalism, showed the seamy underbelly of, of contemporary capitalism. The neoliberal, financialized, unproductive, predatory, speculative type of capitalism, and we said that this already, you know, this process, the, 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 this the debility of capitalism was not produced by the pandemic. It had already been, uh, uh, it had already been quite manifest before that. Many people were expecting a knockdown crisis, and it came in the form of the pandemic. But already we had pointed out that the increasing militarism of the West was uh, rooted in this um, in this debility of Western style neoliberal financialized capitalism. And in many ways, the current war uh, that is ongoing, which I consider to be a war that the West is waging against Russia over Ukraine, this current war manifests in many ways the truths about which the, the, the manifesto spoke already well before this war started. So, uh, so, so, so I would say that that's a good place to begin because essentially what the argument is that, you know, um, when the Soviet Union fell, everybody was celebrating the triumph of capitalism. But unfortunately, if, the, if capitalism won the victory over at least the Soviet style uh, socialism or, or communism, it was a Pyrrhic victory in the sense that on the one hand, the Soviet Union collapsed for reasons entirely to do with itself. Uh, and, and, and with a certain type of rather problematic, shall we say, even corrupt leadership that momentarily took power and which the West took advantage of. But on the other hand, you, it was also the, it came at the time when the West's own capitalism was beginning to weaken. Already neoliberalism was a decade old by this point. And uh, Western countries partly perhaps vindic uh, appearing to be vindicated by the collapse of the Soviet Union completely without warrant. They began to think that this is the correct way of going or whatever. But in any case, they, they were too beholden to the capitalist interests that benefited from this. So they kept going down the neoliberal road. So you have seen decade after decade the increasing debility of capitalism until 2008. And thereafter, we've seen simply growth bumping along the bottom, inequality increasing, protests proliferating, etc. This, all of this, was already clear before the pandemic, and the uh, pandemic merely underlined this. And in many ways, the current war merely underlines this, because in the current, we see the current war is simply another war through which. The, 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 the imperialist core of the world, which is today led by the United States, uh, the, they are waging these wars in order to, uh, 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 to stall and perhaps reverse uh, the, the inexorable uh, movement of, of world capital, uh, inexorable movement of the center of gravity of the world economy from the capitalist West to the uh, uh, socialist East, that is particularly to China, that is, and, and, and in an all sort of way, all this 
a war uh, which is basically so far at least confined to Ukraine, but the hybrid war is not. The sanctions are proliferating, etc. In all of this, uh, what the United States seems to be doing and persuading its allies to do as a way of essentially trying to force the world back into the ambit of capitalism is actually having the opposite effect. So, you know, Danny was saying earlier, you know, it's such a, 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 a we, are, we are facing wall-to-wall -wall propaganda, etc., and that this is a turning point for the world. Well, the wall-to-wall -wall propaganda is only successful in the Western countries. We are subject to it, and partly I think even many people in the West don't believe the wall-to-wall -wall prop propaganda, which is why it gets shriller and more and more anxious by the day. But nevertheless, this is what we are subject to. If you look at a map of the world, which shows the countries that are participating in sanctions against Russia, you will see that actually it's it's very uh, the, the participation is um, confined to the old imperialist core to which we can add one or two other countries. Perhaps we add um, Singapore, we add South Korea, and I believe Finland has taken some measures. But a heck of a lot. I mean, so this is the old imperialist core that's doing this. So it's not, you know, some, uh, 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 you know, it, it, it shows that capitalism, in fact, you know, for all the talk about globalization and America's worldwide hegemony, you can see what a small part of the world capitalism securely dominates. For the rest of the countries of the world are not taking a stance. They are not... They may not love war. Of course, nobody loves war. Um, but they are not criticizing Russia. They are, in fact, taking the position, in many ways, the position that China is taking, that, in fact, in the present conflict, Russia's legitimate security interests were left out of account. And you may well ask, by the way, why, you know, why is Russia being uh, the, the target of the West's um, the West's um, uh, aggression. Uh, after all, Russia is a capitalist country, and they are right. But oddly, the reason why the West is attacking Russia is because even with a, a ruler like Putin, who is not exactly a socialist, but nevertheless, he has some idea of how to maintain his legitimacy over uh, the Russian people, even he recognizes that he cannot implement a full-fledged neoliberal policy of subordinating Russia to Western powers. And so as a result of that, he has pursued a policy which is not entirely to the liking of the West. Similarly, by the way, as long as the West thought that China was just going to become some kind of pale imitation of neoliberal capitalism, they loved China. But as soon as it became clear, particularly in the 2010s and since, that China was actually going to stick to her socialist convictions, that it was going to pursue its social market economy and so on, uh, the West has been ex increasingly aggressive. So you had the declaration of a new Cold War against Russia in the twenty uh, in, in the tw uh, 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 around twenty fourteen, and then by twenty seventeen eighteen, you had President Trump intensifying Obama's pivot to Asia with his own, own new Cold War against China. And these new Cold Wars, etc., have to be understood. You know, one of the other questions we are throwing up is what's Marxism got to do with it? How can Marxism help us to understand what's going on? Well, the key issue is this. Marxism knew, Marx knew, in fact, this is central to Marxism, the core of Marx's analysis. Capitalism is contradictory. And the contradictions of capitalism make it expansionary. They capital capitalist states need to control more than their core territories in order to 
uh, in order to uh, uh, maintain themselves. And so they have tried to do so. But of course, the attempt to subordinate the rest of the world tends to uh, produce pushback, pushback first in the form of contender industrialization of territories that fear subordination or are threatened with subordination, and then finally the uh, combined development or contender development of new countries like China, to a lesser extent the other BRICS, and so on. And this is what this kind of rollback of imperialism is what the United States cannot stand. And in many ways, you know, I was just looking the other day at Zbigniew Brzezinski's um, book, um, The Grand Chessboard, which was written a few years after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And if you read it properly and carefully, you see very clearly what they would like to see. Russia essentially dismembered into manageably smaller units so that the West can control them more easily. That's what in many ways the Ukraine conflict is really about. It looks like a conflict in which Russia has attacked Ukraine, but you, it only looks like that if you completely erase the previous history. History going back to 2014, going back even further to the expansions of NATO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean, in, in that history, right? If we're talking about Marxism, if you're looking at this through a Marxist lens, uh, history is very important because Marxism, one of the uh, a central premise is that history is shaped by and ultimately driven by class struggle and contradictions, as you said, right? There, there are contradictions to everything. I mean, Angles talk about contradictions in nature, but a lot of Marxism is a contradiction in society, contradictions in society that tell us what that society is, what is its makeup, uh, and that if we don't understand that these contradictions are rooted in history, right, a, a historical materialist analysis of history, then we don't then we can't really understand the present. We can't understand what's happening with something with as enormous an event as uh, important as the Russia-Ukraine conflict, for lack of a better term. And when you said right that this new Cold War on Russia was announced in 2014, I mean, Ukraine was at the center of that because after years of military encirclement via NATO, NATO uh, massively expanding after the fall of the Soviet Union, seeing this opportunity, right, like a rabid dog to, to expand all its tentacles to Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine became a central chess piece in this. And NATO was a, a huge player, if not the instigator of the coup in Ukraine, which now, if you say that to our, uh, especially our neoliberal bourgeois counterparts, they will balk at us. They will balk at you and say, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're, uh, you're spreading fake news and misinformation. But the reality is that there was a coup in Ukraine in 2014 that NATO, especially the United States, was not hiding, really, its participation in that coup, uh, and that even uh, any attempts to do so were revealed, right? Uh, you had the Assistant Secretary of State essentially being caught choosing the next leader of Ukraine, Victoria Nuland. So, I mean, that was such a central moment, but if we don't understand that 
this conflict that's happening now is rooted not just in that. I mean, everything that you see even prior to that, right? The Soviet Union, the fall of it, how that has influenced Russian politics and economics today. I mean, how, how can we understand this conflict? We can't. We can't understand why Russia would engage in this military operation because that coup in 2014 led to what? It led to a civil war in Ukraine that's right up against Russia's border. I mean, Donbass is right along Russia's borders, Donetsk, Lugansk. Uh, it's, it, they are uh, very ethnically Russian, but the history is, is very, very real. And so it's important that we understand that history. And the attempts by the corporate media to erase it only fuel these wars, right? Only fuel these, and it's really wars of desperation. I think you're a hundred percent correct there that this, that this war is also showing that capitalism as a world system, but, but imperialism as it's kind of like uh, uh, most acute uh, stage is, is not this kind of uh, all dominant uh, omnipotent force that its inability to shape and drive the events that are happening as as we speak, I think is demonstrative of it, of the system's decline. And, and, and I think what is the birth, as you said, of a pluripolar world, multipolar world, right, uh, that, that many others call it. But the I think the point is, is that yeah, we are in this uh, very interesting moment where sanctions on Russia blow back <laughs> to the United States and the West. The military encirclement uh, essentially tells the rest of the world, right? I mean, look at in Venezuela, the party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the ruling party at their Congress, they were cheering for Russia. They were saying, long live Russia, because Russia is a good partner. And uh, most countries around the world sees the, they see the writing on the wall that if if the if Russia can be treated like this even despite its status it's it's bigger than a lot of these smaller peripheral nations and oppressed nations but uh, I mean it's bigger than a lot of these oppressed nations but it's still being treated right in this very imperialistic way and the fact that these uh, that Russia is a good friend to other countries around the world that are also happen to be targeted by the United States, I think gives pause uh, to most of the world about uh, who they should support, at least most of the world's population, because we hear, you know, the imperialists will say all the countries support the United States uh, and support Ukraine um, in this war when the mass majority of the world's population actually uh, does not support, uh, you know, does not support what the U.S. and NATO are doing here. And, and understand uh, uh, really what's going on. No, absolutely. And what all this, I mean, you raised so many points. I've now got a whole jumble of points here. Too. <laughs> Let me just um, begin by saying, uh, raising, the, you know, you, you, you said about capitalism, class struggle crisis. So very quickly, I would say, you know, maybe one day we should talk about capitalism and its crisis because I have a neat little table and we could just talk about that because ex explaining that would be uh, itself quite uh, an interesting thing. But I think of capitalism generating crisis both in its core uh, realms of value production and the realization of that value, but then also in a number of other realms that are indispensable to the existence of capitalism, namely money, credit, state, 
uh, interstate relations, and of course, the relation between uh, between a, any uh, 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 any capitalist economy and the environment. And we can go through all of them because all of these become sources of crises, and they crises take two different forms. You know, they take forms having to do with exploitation, that is interclass relations, what I call a vertical contradictions, and horizontal contradictions having to do with relations among capitalists and between capitalist countries. But leave that aside for now. But it is really interesting. And so we can talk about all sorts of crises from, you know, tendency of rate of profit to fall, demand, all the way up to environmental and ecological crises. But precisely because capitalism is crisis prone, in fact, it's not just about, it, it tends to generate not just class struggle, which of course it generates, but it also generates international struggle. It generates a struggle between the dominant countries that want to retain their dominance, want to retain their imperial capacities, and those countries that are capable and able, that are able and willing to resist. And that has historically included capitalist countries. But what we have also seen is that starting in 1917, the socialist challenge has been the most powerful. And what does that tell you? And what, uh, yeah, what does that tell you? In one sense, what that tells you is that capitalism, because it requires, a, a, you know, it can only give economic development to a core of the of the world, a capitalist world, which then must dominate the rest of the world, the periphery of the capitalist economy, if we may use world systems terminology, keep it in a subordinated position so that they can continue to have their wealth, etc. Because of that, much of the periphery has actually no serious investment in capitalism unless people are really masochistic and they think that they have to, you know, subordinate themselves to the welfare of other people. No, they, they don't think so. So historically, that's why capitalism has seen a continuing unending series of anti-capitalist revolutions occurring, not in the core where some people thought capitalists revolutions against capitalism would first occur, but precisely in the periphery. And I think also as a result of this, and again, this is this is completely uh, along uh, a part of a Marxist analysis. If you think about it, for after 300 years, or whatever you however long you think capitalism has been in existence, what does capital have to show for itself, that its core consists of nothing much more than the original imperialist core that already existed in 1914, yeah, before we got into the 30 years crisis. So in a sense, it's barely expanded since then. And what does that tell you? It tells you that what capitalist has to offer to the rest of the world, to the world outside the core imperialist countries is so shoddy that there is going there is never going to be any cessation to revolts against capitalism i, I should also say one other thing al alongside this you know if you think about it if you if some of you will have read the manifesto. The manifesto was the communist manifesto, I mean. The communist manifesto was written in 1848. In 1848, capitalism was only beginning to get going, right? The number of workers in Europe would have probably been less than a million or something. So, and yet Marx and Engels were arguing, essentially, or let me rephrase that, yet the manifesto was a call to end capitalism. Essentially, as we put it in the manifesto, to smother it in its European cradle. 
You know, this idea that some Marxists have, that somehow we have to all wait until capitalism has spread all over the world and developed the productive forces all over the world, and only then we can have a worldwide socialist revolution. This is rubbish. It's never, the capitalism is, is not able to develop the forces of production, even in its homeland these days, where it is languishing in, its, in a financialized form that has left the productive economy uh, 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 quite debilitated. So it's not even able to do it in its homelands. It's not going to do it in the peripheries. In the peripheries, the only way in which you can have a, a reasonable development, uh, which is reasonably just, etc., is to follow some kind of socialistic path. And in many ways, China is a decent model uh, uh, for for many countries, it's not a it's not a model. I should perhaps say model, but China, the Chinese example, should treat. Um, people a great deal. So, so, so those were at least some of the points that I felt I should make about this. Because you know, to come back to Ukraine, essentially, this is a war between the, uh, as I say, those countries that have thrown in their lot with a decaying, financialized neoliberal American leadership, and the rest of the world. And by the way, the more this wears on, we are also going to see something else. Already you see in the French elections, in the different pressures that is pulling Olaf Scholz one way and uh, another way, that actually the uh, the much trumpeted unity of NATO, uh, allegedly, you know, the claim that they have all somehow come together to impose sanctions on Russia is complete fiction. Each country is is, is is imposing the sanctions that are convenient to them. Gas is still flowing from Russia to Europe through pipelines in Ukraine. So in that sense, again, you know, uh, I think, Danny, you were saying earlier, and I, I'll, I'll end my, my remarks for now here, but you were saying earlier that, you know, uh, uh, capitalism itself is getting incoherent. I, I think this is something we have to take very seriously. You know, the idea that somehow the Americans have a plan that they're pursuing. No, I think the Americans have some sort of a memory of a plan. But even in the United States, different elements of capitalism are pulling in different directions. So I would say that capitalism is also increasingly co incoherent. Yeah, no, it, definitely. I mean, I think this whole notion that uh, capitalism cannot really resolve its own contradictions, as you said, is just plain to see right now. And that the the notion that capitalism can just develop to its final stage and then we everywhere and then we get socialism right this kind of very a very orthodox way of looking at revolution it, first of all it doesn't exist in the real world and second of all uh, what we're seeing now with the ukraine crisis is that global capitalism led by the united states doesn't have the capacity to even manage a situation like the Ukraine crisis uh, fully to its own benefit. I mean, if we think about, as you said, the gas continuing to flow, that, that's just an, that's an acknowledgement by, by capital itself that if Russian gas is turned off in a major way, Europe, then there's going to be a worldwide economic crisis with Europe at the center. And the United States continuing to pump oil from Russia, even to, if it's a lesser degree, is an acknowledgement that uh, there will be a worldwide economic crisis if that is fully stopped. So there, there are these extreme limitations uh, that I think shows how 
connected the world has become this whole the whole sort of idea of globalization has reached uh, its most i think acute phase and pluripolarity seems to be this expression of how uh, there there are various responses to this globalization and russia is a very unique i think a case because Russia has had the experience. I mean, Russia and a lot of Eastern Europe had the experience of the Soviet Union and, and socialism, the socialist bloc, and had, they had the experience of neoliberal shock therapy right after that, and now has the experience of being kind of caught in this world order that is uh, designed to uphold U.S. hegemony, but U.S. hegemony can't really hold itself up. So Russia is kind of in the middle of all of that, navigating it in its own way. And a lot of people have confu are confused by that because Russia is a very complex place because a lot of people don't understand the Soviet Union. So how could they understand the history of the Soviet Union, the reality of what happened after its fall? So how could they understand how Russia is governed and why Russia is doing what it's doing in the Ukraine crisis or in any other Absolutely. situation, issue, policy? You can't understand it if you don't understand that uh the u.s hegemony can hold itself up and is and is kind of trying to export all of the consequences of that it's trying to level that on the entire planet but it just keeps blowing back it's so it's it's and that's the contradiction that's the interconnect i feel like that's that's the connection between um uh yeah these contradictions is that uh, there's this this is kind of like a feedback loop happening for the United States. The, lo the longer they try to pursue this hegemony, the more this, the, what Marx would call the graveyard, the graveyard of capitalism, it grows bigger and bigger. Uh, and, yeah. it's, and it's almost like the system is, is, is just back, is, 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 is backing up as it tries to move forward. Exactly. I mean, I would say also that, you know, if you, if you think about, the fact that what capitalism requires from the rest of the world is a um, is a, they need to have markets, they need to invest their surpluses somewhere, and of course they uh, yeah they 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 need a, a labor force and they need resources, and essentially by by going to war with much of with 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 Russia and but with, with much of the rest of the world siding with Russia, the capitalist world's ability to access these things itself is being eroded, and this is it's no wonder therefore that uh, important sections of the European elite and even the American elite are basically saying let you know this is not the way to go. We've got to put a stop to this because at the end of the day, what are they going to do without access to cheap resources, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, I, absolutely, I think this is definitely, um, uh, definitely what's going back. And speaking of sanctions blowback, of course, we, you know, we haven't even talked about this, but um, as some of you may know already, what's going going on right now is that the United States, by freezing Russia's central bank assets, has really. Uh, dealt a death blow to the dollar system for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, it was the United. This is not the first time the United States has essentially stolen a country's money. It has done that before to Venezuela, for example, and uh, and Iran, and so on. But and Iraq as well, by the way. And of course, Afghanistan. You know, right now, uh, everybody wants to cry crocodile tears over the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. But in fact, the only one of the major parts of the solution to that crisis is is actually to um, 
to release the reserves that the Americans are keeping and threatening to give to Afghanistan's enemies, actually. Um, so so the United States has done this before, but it has never done it to a country of the size and significance, systemic significance of Russia. Russia is not a tiny economy. It may not be the biggest, but it's not tiny. Moreover, Russia is home to some of the most critical supplies of energy, minerals, and even agricultural production. So in that sense, by taking, by sequestering, by freezing Russia's central bank reserves, essentially the United States has, uh, uh, has told the world that its financial system is like a completely unreliable bank. Imagine if you were, uh, 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 if, you're, if you discovered that your bank had essentially uh, taken away the money of your friend who also banks there and uh, essentially told your friend that they cannot have access to their own money, would you continue banking with that bank? This is the key thing. And by the way, this is not a, a, a sudden turning point. The, you know, the uh, faith in and the, uh, the faith in and attractions of the American financial system, which forms the basis of the dollar, was being undermined even before the present crisis, even before the war over Ukraine and so on. And if you think about it, uh, one very simple indication of how serious this crisis is, is to just look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. If you Google Federal Reserve balance sheet, you should be able to find a chart that shows you how before 2008 federal reserve uh, uh, the federal reserve's balance sheet had assets of about a trillion dollars between 2000 you know in the years imme immediately after 2008 it went up to about 4 trillion dollars and it then kind of stabilized and just before the pandemic it was beginning to sort of taper just a tiny bit but once the pandemic came along it shot up to more than twice as much to over 9 trillion. What is all this money? This or what are all these assets? This is all this is a measure of the extent to which the Federal Reserve has had to pump money into the asset markets whose attractiveness keeps people uh, 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 demanding dollars and therefore keeping up its value. But essentially today, the dollar's value is completely artificial by, thanks to the, uh, the upward pressure on it that the Federal Reserve's own uh, activities have been putting. So in that sense, the sanctions blowback is very considerable and the, 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 the severity of this problem uh, can be seen if we consider the fact that, you know, when the United States came along, you know, as I as I describe in my book, um, early in the 20th century, the United States could see United States business and policy making elites could see that Britain was no longer the uh, no longer sort of dominating the world economy, not even dominating the world financial system and commercial system. So they basically felt that they would like, you know, since British dominance was fading, that they, this they would replace this with some kind of American dominance. And essentially, the history of American foreign policy since then has been a history of trying to establish this dominance. It was never successful, but it has never stopped trying. Now, if you can, and, and, and so they wanted to establish this social dominance. The, the, but of course, the British dominance relied on the biggest empire the world had ever seen in history, the empire on which the sun never set. The United States had no hope in hell in a world of competing empires, in a world of rising nationalism, etc., to 
establish such an entity. So they said, okay, we won't get to have an empire, but we will try to create a dollar system. We will try to make the dollar the world's money. Well, what they forgot is that the only reason sterling had served as world's money is because in a relatively stable fashion, even that was not entirely stable, but it, insofar as it was, it was totally reliant on Britain's ability to squeeze surpluses out of her formal colonies like British India, like Black, uh, British colonies in Africa and the Caribbean, etc. Without this ability, the British sterling would not have performed the role that it did for a while, for a relatively short while, if you think about it. And as a consequence, as I also show in my in my book, the dollar has never succeeded. It has, it did not succeed. Then it led to the breaking of, of the link to gold. And since that time, since 1971, it has relied on the financializations that have cost the world so much in terms of financial crises, in terms of increasing inequality, and ultimately in terms of diverting vast quantities of money away from productive investment and into speculation and predatory activities. So this is just some of the, uh, some of the ways in which we are looking at a real crunch point, the, fi the financial sanctions blowback is going to undermine the dollar system and it is already being undermined because quite frankly other people are already constructing alternatives to them the chinese the russians the indians and a whole bunch of other countries besides are creating alternative bilateral and multilateral structures to bypass the dollar right i mean the economics of this if we get to the heart of i guess uh, marxist economics are fascinating uh, because i think you know, what sets the stage here, this decline of the dollar is, is it kind of rests on this contraction, this real stagnation that is also coupled with all these contractions, these economic crises that are just on, you know, they, they occur, but the stagnation, unlike in past cycles, the stagnation continues, right? There, there isn't, as you said earlier in the stream, in the West, in, in, in the citadels of capital, there isn't this recovery. I mean, the the economists, the pundits, and the media, the bourgeois media, the corporate media, they love to talk about how things are recovering. Yes. Uh, but not even they are very confident in their own words because the reality says differently. There's extremely slow growth and then these huge collapses. You saw it in 2020, which people like Michael Hudson said was actually in the works for many years before that, at least a few years before that. And then you had in 2008, where which still the the United States economy is not as big as it was. The, there's not as many jobs, right? There, and that, that's just true across the West. I mean, the, the decline of the dollar, right, had, had been happening all along this path. And then the United States, it was almost as if the United States had no other option, saw no other option, right? Other than, of course, the things that we wanted with diplomacy, peace, uh, maybe, just maybe not pouring gasoline onto what was a growing fire. But uh, that was out of the question for the United States. And it, 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 so it felt like the ruling class, despite the divisions that have occurred, only saw one way to unify around uh, uh, the the question of Ukraine, which was to move forward with 
the only means I think that the United States and NATO, I mean the NATO countries, the European junior partners, the only way they they knew how and they could, because militarily even they were saying, oh no no no, we cannot. We cannot go all in here. This would be a disaster. I mean, military strategists have been talking about this for a long time, that if you think about any direct conflict with Russia and China, I mean, you're talking about oh, uh, you're talking about a situation that maybe humanity doesn't live through, but the United States, just military to military, may not succeed in. So I think that it, it, what it feels like is that it was this weapon, this weapon of sanctions was the only way the United States could assert its political hegemony and it almost weighed the cost benefit of, okay, there will be, of course, uh, costs to this, but at the very least, we did something that gets us to this end goal, which is maintaining hegemony, trying to uh, attempting to weaken Russia. And it, and it seemed like a miscalculation. But then again, we talk about the contradictions of capital at the same capitalism Mis it's not about really calculations or miscalculations. It's not about plan. This is the, the thing that people think that capitalism, everyone's just pulling the strings, but it's there is like a, quite a bit of anarchy, quite a bit of un, uh, almost unplanned consequences. And, and I don't think that this economic crisis was was a planned. Con it, it's it's a consequence that just comes from the limited, uh, I think, the limited tools at the disposal of. of of the system and where it's at, the system of capitalism and where it is right now. Gosh, absolutely. You raise again so many points. I mean, I don't think we're going to get to the limited tools part, but we can, you know, perhaps if we have that talk about inflation later on, we can talk about the limited tools uh, in some greater detail or maybe the, the, the crisis stuff and so on. But let me, let me, uh, let me look, let me say a couple of things about the most, I think, fundamental point you raised, which is that, you know, um, after 2008, uh, in fact, even after, basically throughout this century, if you think about it, you know, basically the neoliberal period of capitalism has, you know, neoliberalism was supposed to revive capitalism, restore the mojo of capitalism, etc. But it never did that. The, uh, and, you know, in a certain sense, Reagan and Thatcher were perhaps a little bit different from the later neoliberal leaders that we got. But because it, I think somewhere in them, they were sufficiently ideological to perhaps genuinely believe that the you know restoring free market capitalism was going to revive capitalism. But it never did. And what we have got is essentially four decades in which growth has become ever lower um, and, and, and every time there's a crisis, you get like these jobless recoveries and these inadequate recoveries. But at the same time, because recovery is never complete, you get this strange sort of cycle between people talking about green shoots. Remember green shoots after 2008? They kept being announced, but the poor green shoots withered before they could grow. So, uh, 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 so what's really going on? And this is where to bring the manifesto back in, you know, I would say the manifesto makes a very clear argument and it reflects the understanding of many of us. And it goes something like this. If you, you know, people say, well, you know, Marx's analysis is no longer relevant because after all, he wrote, published Capital Volume 1 like 150 years ago and blah, blah, and so on. Actually, if you read Capital, particularly I'm here thinking about uh, a very late chapter in Volume 3, um, 
chapter 27, I think, you know, he he talks, Marx talks about a number of things in this. But one of the things he, what he says seems to suggest something like this. You know, Marx said that capitalism would have a historical utility and there would come a time when its historical utility will have been exhausted. But this is where I think he, it, it becomes clearest what he meant by that. So basically, capitalism's historical utility is in, in, is in fostering the growth of the forces of production primarily by socializing labor. So in the first phase of capitalism, in the competitive phase of capitalism, uh, labor is socialized between firms. So you get specialization between, say, you know, the, 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 the firm that produces the cloth and the firm that produces the bread and the firm that produces the machinery and so on and so forth. So you get specialization between firms. But increasingly, as capitalism develops, you enter the monopoly phase of capitalism where each sector is dominated by one or a very few really, really big companies. The reason is very simple. The development of the forces of production themselves lead in a direction where you need to have centrally planned production. Of, uh, and a lot of it can be centrally planned, and it is centrally planned in the form of big, corporate, big corporations. And Marx says that this is about the time when essentially, the, so, and, and this is the socialization of, of, of labor within firms, that is within a productive unit. And the leap from a, an economy dominated by a few really big firms to an economy which is centrally planned is not so great. So Marx basically imagined a transition to capitalism taking place already in a form of capitalism that was visible by this time. Okay, by the end of the 19th century to Marx. Marx died in 1883. So before he died, it was already clear to him that many such these things were already happening. And I would suggest that he was basically right. Why do I say that? Because if you think about it, what happened then was precisely the development of capitalism of this sort of big monopoly capitalism, what Hilferding called finance capitalism, because basically in this period, according to Hilferding, and I think he was right, in some of the more advanced capitalist countries like Germany, you had essentially the transformation of the old form of speculative and predatory finance into a form of industrial finance, finance which had to be committed to expanding productive uh, activity uh, and which were often tied very closely with big corporations. Anyway, so, so you know, these kind of capitalisms began to emerge. And of course, because they were many and they engaged not only in industrial competition, but with um, in imperial competition, we got the the, the Thirty Years' Crisis, the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War, 1914 to 1945. After that, the golden age that was experienced by capitalism, you know, you say, well, okay, so that was bad, but then you got the golden age, so capitalism was well and fine, you know, it was capable of still expanding, but not so fast. Because if you think about it, the reason why capital capitalism in its homelands was able to have a really good innings, as they say in cricket, 
really have uh, about three decades of expanding growth, et cetera, is because it was ringed around with socialistic measures, full employment policies, welfare states, considerable state ownership, considerable state investment in expanding domestic production, productive activities, research and development, blah, blah, you, you name it, the state was in it. And it was only, and, and this did indeed give rise to the so-called golden age of capitalism and so on. But when the underlying capitalism nevertheless produced a crisis of overproduction, overinvestment, etc., the world, the capitalist world stood at a fork. It could go left by deepening the socialistic measures of the post-war period, or it could go right, essentially saying the problem were these socialistic measures, roll them back and everything will be fine. Well, the world went in a rightward direction and look where we are today, 40 years later. We live in a much more unequal economy. We live in a much less productive economy. We live in a financialized economy. We live in an economy which is not even produced what we need. Instead, it produces what big oligarchs, we should call them oligarchs, or our billionaires want to offer us. They want to offer us metaverse and Facebook, whereas what we need is proper food, proper education, proper transportation, proper housing, etc., etc. And that is not what we are being offered. The sickness of capitalism is multiplying on every dimension. So that's where we are at. Whereas you can have a more planned economy like China's and they are actually managing to fulfill human needs. The world can see that, right? So, so that's where I, so this is just a very long-winded way of saying that Marx's analysis is actually, fortunately or unfortunately, I would say largely fortunately, but in a certain ironic sense, also unfortunately still relevant. That's where we are, we are at right now. So. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, definitely, uh, there's just so there's just so much uh, to all of this. I mean, the history that you went over, it, I mean, it, it lives on in, into this moment. I, I mean, the crisis of overproduction, this this uh, reality of capitalism, where uh, the principal contradiction is is that capital is always attempting always it, it's a necessity of capital to to expand expand profit to increase profit to uh, raise the rate of exploitation to uh, uh, monopolize in order to because it's a competition among capitalists to to try to win that competition and to uh, essentially consolidate uh, capital itself and that inevitably, as the rate of exploitation rises, uh, we've seen this permanent crisis of overproduction. Some have called it like underconsumption. And it's because raising the rate of exploitation on who? Well, it's not on capital. Or capital is doing the raising of exploitation. It's on uh, the class or classes, the exploited class, the working classes of the world, the toiling classes, that uh, they uh, ultimately, right, don't have any capacity to absorb the fruits uh, of their own. It, it is, it, it has become a point where it's not just that labor, it, the value of labor is just what is necessary to reproduce it. It's just that that value has been taken to such a low point that capital itself is, it doesn't really, doesn't really have the capacity to, uh, to recover in the same way. That's why you don't have, 
this this massive sort of stimulus and investment in in people and workers because everything it seems like every single issue every single question anything that has to do with cutting into this these profits you hear it all the time oh corporate profits are are record high and it's like yes that's that's the design that that's on purpose that's be, that, that is the logic that is that is how capitalism operates uh and now uh, sh- despite the fact of course we don't have these we don't have a, a an extremely strong let's say working class movement or a movement that's pushing back against capital but it's quite clear that capital has oriented itself to prevent that by any means necessary as you said this backlash right after this so-called golden age that backlash was a necessity it was seen as this uh, necessary uh, orientation that needed to be taken in order to keep uh, the system uh, going as it were and and i think the manifesto is an incredible document because it shows that one of the reasons for that is because there was a world socialist movement. I, I mean, the very moment that this uh, neoliberal era started was really kind of the height of the world socialist movement. It was the late seventies, right? You had a, just this period along you know, the Soviet union had uh, grown immensely, had become one of the bigger economies of the world, China, had existed for almost three decades, had just won, it had just been victorious in getting its status back as a as the rightful China in the United Nations. And then you had Vietnam, you had Cuba, you had DPRK, you had Laos, you had so many countries, you had the 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 form the colonized world struggling for various kinds of socialism and and independence and uh, that led to this this moment. There was an economic crisis at that time too in the late seventies, and and then it was determined, right, right, that the only thing that capital could unify on was a complete and total assault, as 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 was possible uh, over the coming periods uh, on working people, and that's what we've that's what we've had. That's that's what we've had, and, and it and it really does connect to this Ukraine crisis because. Ukraine, like just look at the condition of Ukraine since the fall of the Soviet Union. I think per capita income is still smaller or, or, or very close to the same amount as it was in that period. So there has been it's zero growth. There were, it, it, so the, the economic condition of Ukraine, which is reinforced by everything we were talking about, the dollar hegemony, right, which is the IMF. What did the IMF do after the coup in Ukraine in 2014? came right in and implemented a sort of modified version of shock therapy. It, it, it was a program of austerity. The whole dose. reason... Ukraine got a second dose, actually. Because exactly. it only one before, in the 1990s. Right. And the, yeah. and the purpose of the coup really was... I mean, the, the political motivation behind it was Ukraine's... Uh, 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 Viktor Yanukovych was saying, "Wait, we can't, we can't just go along, say that we're going to sell our economy to Europe, that we're just going to uh, get rid of all of the protections. No, we need to have a balanced kind of relationship with Russia and the EU, 
and we can't get rid of things like pensions and subsidies and things like that. And that was really what broke the straw that broke the camel's back and, and led to Viktor Yanukovych being on the out for the United States and Europe. So, uh, so the economic base of this whole situation is, is very important and not talked about at all. You know, we're not supposed to talk about Absolutely. the economic roots of this problem. Absolutely. And in fact, let me, I mean, again, a few reflections. I think you're so right to say that, you know, there's overproduction or what's often called overproduction is the same as underconsumption. Because what do we mean by overproduction? We mean that the, uh, the capitalist enterprises are producing more than they can sell. Why can't they sell it? Because capitalism relies on exploiting workers in such a way that systematically they, they uh, uh, appropriate the excess or appropriate an excess of what the, you know, what the total produce is and keep it for themselves, which they don't necessarily spend. So essentially, overproduction and underconsumption are two sides of the same coin. So that's the first thing. And, 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 and in a sense, the present crisis is a crisis of overproduction of capitalism precisely. And it was already a problem back in the 1970s when capitalism entered this crisis. It was a crisis of overproduction and underconsumption. And the adoption of neoliberalism as a policy has only further exacerbated the problem because the one thing neoliberalism will not allow is an expansion of the incomes of working people and of the poor countries around the world uh, so that th there is more demand. So since capitalism will not allow this, it is going to be necessarily in a constantly in a stagnationist position. And then, uh, you know, you were saying that um, uh, as well, you know, the, the points you were making about Ukraine and shock therapy and so on. You know, a couple of quick points. You know, people say the Soviet Union, you know, you know after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no one to speak for the Soviet Union. Not even the Russian government, even under Putin, spoke for the Soviet Union. So all sorts of things today can be said about the Soviet Union as though they were true, which were in, which are in fact blatant lies. Let's consider just one thing. People say that the Soviet Union collapsed because people no longer wanted it. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact of the matter is that in the year it collapsed, in 1991, early in the year, there was actually a referendum, Soviet Union-wide referendum, in which overwhelming majorities, 80% of the people voted to keep the Soviet Union. 80% of the people voted. So you can see it was 80% of 80%, right? So that was a fairly substantial majority of the Russian people who said they did not wish to lose the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, Yeltsin and the presidents of Belarusia and Ukraine at the time, or the leaders of Belarusia and Ukraine at the time, got together, signed an agreement dissolving the Soviet Union. This was not theirs to do, but that's what they did. In this, they were encouraged by Western countries. That's the first thing. Quickly, second thing, the shock therapy that was imposed on Russia after that and Ukraine and other countries, you know, all the Eastern European countries, they underwent such an economic punishment that the unthinkable happened, that in peacetime, longevity declined. People lived on average less long. Essentially, people were simply dying.
Okay, that's how bad things were. And if you bear in mind that the Soviet Union had been quite a prosperous society, even in the days when it was having a lot of problems, you know, the days of perestroika and glasnost and so on, it was a fairly prosperous society for that to come to this. It was a pretty severe shock. It was a huge, huge uh, shock to the Soviet uh, system. And that's partly what, what people don't understand is that Putin derives a large part of his legitimacy for putting the system back in some semblance of stability and prosperity after Yeltsin. He came to power in 2000 and over the last two decades and more, he has derived his power and legitimacy largely from that. And I would say that, you know, if I was a citizen of the Soviet Union, unless I saw something considerably better, I would support this. And in fact, I know many people who, who are leftists who, who would wish to see something better, but they do not see such a person as yet emerging that is a problem of the left but that's another matter definitely and i think the way that the left and the way that the west in general has reacted to the russia ukraine conflict the ukraine crisis is very much indicative of that i mean it, it just there's just utter confusion about how to think about it whose side to take it's like who do whose side to take i mean there's there's all these questions uh, that unfortunately we can't get in this to it all in this conversation. Um, I think we're going to wrap up here, actually. Uh, for those who have been listening, of course, uh, continue to like the video. Uh, help That helps boost it in the algorithm. Of course, subscribe to the channel and you can become a member and help sustain the work financially at patreon.com slash Danny Haifan. But Radhika, it was really good uh, to be with you today uh, is there anything last words that you have for well, uh, viewers? no I mean, just, thanks for a great conversation and i'll just say that if you are one if you know the last bit that danny pointed to which is you know the left in the soviet union but the left elsewhere i mean what should the what are the positions the left should take and of course ultimately the manifesto is all about that so there's much more in it so please give it a good read and consider signing it yes yes indeed well uh, we're going to sign off now, but of course, continue to like it. Continue If you just joined, uh, make sure you start from the beginning. Uh, like the stream, subscribe to the channel, and then help out at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. And I will see uh, you again next time. Thanks again, Radhika. We'll definitely try to do a, sort of kind of like a series of these conversations uh, to try to help um, try to help those on the left and whoever is watching these streams get a grasp of of, of Marxism and its application. And then we can talk about what people should study. I've been trying to help people with that too, but we can definitely get more into all of that. So thanks again, Radhika, and, and take care, everybody. Bye-bye.